Election College episode 318, Richard Milhouse Nixon, part two. Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks, but did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. See what I did there, Ben? I included Millhouse. I like it. Appreciate maybe that. We should, maybe we should just start calling them Millhouse. Maybe we should change the, the name of the podcast to Election Millhouse College. Ah. We would get so... It's impo- It's almost impossible to have more listeners than we have now, but we would. We would get more listeners. I, I think so. <laughs> you know, Ben, it wasn't until we went away for a while that I realized that there are a few people who listen. So thank you, people who listen. <laughs> I, uh, I I mean, I, I know the analytics. I know there are people who listen. But when we're gone, you're like, where are you? So that's good. It's good that you missed us. Appreciate that. So Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. Mm-hmm. He becomes a politician. Actually, he became a baby in the last episode. That's right. Yep. <laughs> and he also became a politician. How does one do that? I mean, I guess well. it's just by growing up, right? Mm. Although yeah. I would say that some politicians are not grown ups, but that's a different discussion for a different podcast. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. He gets elected to Congress. We know that he wins. Uh, if you're going to beat an incumbent, sixty-five and a half thousand to almost fifty thousand, that's that ain't bad. In uh, June 1947, Nixon he's going around. He's like supporting all of these different pro-American, pro. Uh, let's make sure that we're, you know, not gonna become communist yeah (laughs) it's so easy to look back on that era and be like oh yeah america it was america was you know the democracy they were the the people who were anti-socialism and and things like that and it wasn't necessarily that way so you had people like richard nixon you had people like mccarthy uh they kind of freaked out when you heard the word communist oh yeah and yeah. that uh actually that kind of freaks me out saying that i mean communist right in america right just seems so weird because you know we hated the russians back then yeah it's it, it was less probably i would assume about the political ideologies as it was about the connection to the bad guys yeah yeah uh you've got the house un-american activities committee and he's a member of it and he hears enemy number one, Gerhard Eisler, and his sister Ruth Fisher testify. He refers to Eisler's belligerence towards the Un-American Activities Committee in his first speech to the House. He gets together with uh, Representative Charles Kirsten, introduces them to Father John Francis Cronin in Baltimore. Cronin shares with Nixon his privately circulated paper, The Problem of American Communism in 1945. 
and you know the FBI they're they're a part of this and by May of 1948 Nixon is sponsoring the Munt Nixon bill which wants to implement a quote new approach to the complicated problem of eternal communist subversion and it says let's register all the members of the communist party and let them have it yeah so they get this bill together they end up uh sending it to the or it goes to the house where where nixon is uh he's the floor manager at the time for the republican party and the bill passes overwhelmingly in the house but the senate it doesn't pass but still this is considered like a really large victory in congress for nixon um kind of puts him on the map as somebody who uh is important i guess and kind of gives his name uh it kind of kind of sets him up for what could come next he also there was there was a case in around 1948 called the Alger Hiss spy case and a lot of people said hey this guy named Whitaker Chambers uh he's saying that this other guy named Alger Hiss is a Soviet spy and Nixon's like yeah probably he's he's probably a spy and Hiss files a lawsuit and then Chambers is like hey Here's some documents that uh, that prove you're a communist and a Soviet spy, and so that ends up going on to to convict Hiss, and Nixon cross files as a candidate in his district again, and wins both major primaries. Of course, when you win both the major primaries, you get reelected, and he goes on to serve another term. But shortly thereafter, he thinks, this House stuff, you know, it's, it's fine, but it's not all that. I could run for Senate. So they push him to run for Senate against the incumbent on the Democratic side, Sheridan Downey. And Downey, who really was somebody who had faced some tough battles already in the primaries, anytime you face a hard primary, you know that the fall election may not be as good for you. So he ends up retiring in March of the next year or resigning or retiring or whatever you want to call it. Oh, he retires. His his term is over. And then Nixon wins the primary election and goes on to run for the, the fall election for the general election. And during this time, the Korean war is going on or the Korean conflict, however you want to put it, but we're going to call it the Korean war. And there's a lot of stuff that happens here, but the essential point is that Nixon uses the Korean War to his advantage. He wins the election by almost 20%, which, by the way, doesn't necessarily sound like a lot, but it's a lot for sure. And during this campaign, Nixon may or may not have pulled some interesting things and gets dubbed as Tricky Dick by the Democrats during the the campaign. And forever, we will know him as Tricky Dick Millhouse, something like that. (laughs) Ezra Cornell. (laughs) Nixon the first. That's right. The Lionheart. Yeah. So like Ben says, you know, he wins the Senate 20 percentage points. You're going to do really well at this point in our nation's history if you label your opposition communist. And that's precisely 
what he just continues to do. He gets together uh, with uh, Joseph McCarthy. You all know him, right? We could probably do an episode on Joseph McCarthy. He's important enough to enough elections. I think it would be worthwhile. He keeps some distance uh, between McCarthy, uh, his allegations, but, you know, he's close enough. And Nixon uh, criticizes President Truman's handling of the Korean War. He supports statehood for Alaska and Hawaii and votes in favor of civil rights for minorities. He supports disaster relief for India and Yugoslavia and he votes against price controls and other monetary restrictions um, for things like benefits for illegal immigrants and public power. So the guy is kind of the first prominent Republican that you can see those policies continuing into this day. I think it's pretty safe to say. Yeah, I would say so. And, and Jason, you mentioned that uh, he put some distance between himself and Joseph McCarthy. And I have always thought that Nixon didn't really disagree with McCarthy's allegations against people. But like you said earlier, even though it's easy to think that our country was by and large anti-communist, and, and by and large it was, there were still a lot of people who were sympathetic. And so it was pretty shrewd of him to probably work in the backgrounds with McCarthy on all his allegations and everything, but at the same time, not involve himself politically, wrapping up, you know, going out and accusing people himself. Uh, so, again, Tricky Dick, coming to get you. That trickster. Yeah. So, on the national front, presidential national front, that is, you've got Dwight David Eisenhower, and he has been nominated for the president in 1952. Now, as you know, the Democrats thought that they could get Ike on their side, but Ike's like, oh, comes out, he's a Republican, and the Republican machine is very much aware of that perception that, well, what does Eisenhower really believe? We need to get somebody who is going to take this huge stand with this Republican base that has emerged. Uh, you know, you even had socialists, just as a side, a side note, you even had socialists in the Republican Party in the decades prior to this era. So the Republicans are becoming, you know, this party that's like, hey, we are, we are staunchly anti-communist and we need somebody who carries the mantle of of this and uh you know there's the the smoke-filled room you can imagine what it's like hey buddy we need to nominate somebody who's going to stand for the republican ideals that we have just created and that man who they selected was richard nixon let's face it he's young he's a firebrand and he is going to balance out some of those people who might be on the fence with Ike. So Nixon is 39 and he's pretty young as far as the political standards go. He's got a strong stance against communism. He's got a political base in California, which California is certainly now in 2020, 
uh, an important state as far as winning the Electoral College, but certainly at that point was uh, an important part of it as well. And they really pushed him hard because he was an important piece to getting certain voters that maybe they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And Eisenhower is smart in, in his running for president because he's talking about his plans for the country, what he's going to do, what he's capable of doing, etc. And he says, hey, Nixon, you're going to be in charge of all the negative campaign spend, uh, which seems like that's kind of the opposite nowadays, uh, at least in the last couple elections, um, where the, the president takes on more of the attack and the vice president takes on more of the peacekeeping kind of thing. But again, a, a different discussion for a different day. In later that year, right before the election in September, so not even an October surprise, but a September surprise, there's a lot going on. Basically, Nixon had a political fund, um, which you know would reimburse him for political expenses. And this is not illegal or maybe not even that uncommon, uh, but it does open him up to a lot of accusations of conflicts of interest. And so people are pushing on Ike to get rid of Nixon, take him off the ticket. And Ike says, no. Uh, and, and goes on and does the checker speech. Now, if you've listened to our podcast in order a few episodes ago, uh, maybe a few years ago, I don't know, uh, there we talk about the checker speech and everything like that. So I won't rehash that entirely. But basically, it's a, it's huge. 60 million Americans, uh, probably the largest television audience at that point uh, ever, uh, tune in to hear that. And Nixon's there, and he is defending himself Um stating that you know this isn't a secret nobody is getting special favors or anything uh hey i'm not a rich man uh i i don't have a mink coat i have a cloth coat uh and that he's a patriot and so this has a lot of impact you know he goes on tv people can see him people can hear him talk directly to them and really gives him a leg up um the reason it's called the checker speech by the way is because of uh, a dog that's mentioned during that speech. And that really becomes uh, kind of a, a heart tugging moment for a lot of people. And uh, the, the people are behind them again. Um, Eisenhower keeps them on the ticket and they end up winning the election in November. Yeah. I gives Nixon some pretty big responsibilities as vice president. John Adams would not be happy because <laughs> It took a long time, like over 150 years, to uh, have a vice president become so powerful. But anyway, Eisenhower gives Nixon some pretty big responsibilities, like um, uh, chairing the uh, meetings of the cabinet, as well as the National Security Council, uh, when Ike was out of the office. In 1953, he tours the Far East, and this fosters some goodwill um, between uh, Saigon and, and some of the other uh, cities and countries um, there in the Far East. Nixon is campaigning pretty hard to keep control of Congress, both the House and the Senate. And they lose a lot of seats in the 1954 elections. And Nixon really thinks, man, after, after this term, I don't know if I should keep going. Uh, because apparently I'm not very effective. I couldn't even get our own people elected. And he's thinking about leaving politics entirely. 
But in 1955, Ike has a heart attack, and a lot of people think that he is on his way out. So he's unable to really perform any of his presidential duties for about six weeks. And Nixon, as the vice president at this point, has no real power, at least formally, to act or do anything because the 25th Amendment had not been passed yet. But even though that's the case, he steps in and does a lot of the stuff that Ike should have been doing uh, that he couldn't do because he was sick. And a lot of people praised him because he didn't attempt to take over. He just fulfilled the responsibilities uh, that Ike wasn't able to fulfill. So that brings Nixon a lot of encouragement and helps raise his spirits a good bit and boost him on to seeking a second term. Now, a lot of Eisenhower's aides in, in his presidency are trying to get rid of him. Uh, Ike actually asked Nixon, or proposes it at least, the, to not run and talking, maybe you know, maybe you should get some different experience before you go on to run for president. Maybe you should be a cabinet officer in the next administration instead of being the vice president. And Nixon's like, no, I, I, I've already been vice president. I can't go back to being something besides that. So Eisenhower says, okay, well, I've got to announce my re-election bid, uh, re-election bid. And a lot of people are like, well, who's going to be your running mate? And he won't answer. And Nixon ends up getting a bunch of write-in votes against Eisenhower in the New Hampshire primary. And Ike's like, okay, uh, I guess this is my sign that I should keep Nixon as my running mate. And so they go on and they win again in 1956. With the victory in early 1957, Nixon takes another major foreign trip, this time to Africa. He comes back to the States and shepherds the Civil Rights Act of 1957 through Congress. Now, the Senate weakens the bill, and some of the civil rights leaders were divided over whether or not Eisenhower should sign it. Nixon tells Ike, go ahead, sign the bill. And later in the year... Eisenhower suffers a mild stroke. Nixon gives a press conference assuring the nation that the cabinet, they're doing well, uh, even though the president is temporarily incapacitated, he's going to be fine, uh, and your country is in good hands. In 1958, Richard and Pat uh, Nixon go on a goodwill tour of South America. He is traveling all over the place. And what ends up happening is this is fostering goodwill. America is showing itself as a leader internationally. In 1959, Ike even sends uh, Tricky Dick to the Soviet Union. <laughs> uh, I, I was not aware of this national uh, American national exhibition in Moscow, but this happened under the Khrushchev administration. I know, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, There's an instance where these two, uh, uh, Khrushchev and Nixon, stop at a model of an American kitchen. And they get into this uh, 
little exchange about the merits of capitalism versus communism, and this becomes known as the kitchen debate. What a name to be remembered by, <laughs> the kitchen debate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1960, Nixon launches his first campaign for the presidency and doesn't really get a lot of opposition in the Republican primaries. They know he's a powerhouse. He's not really somebody they want to get out of office uh, entirely. And he ends up going on and choosing the former senator from Massachusetts, Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, the Democratic opponent, here comes trouble for, for Nixon, is JFK. And honestly, he never stood a chance. Uh, basically, Nixon campaigns on his experience and says, you know, look, I've, I've been in office already. I know what I'm doing. All these people like me, etc." And Kennedy says, nah, we need new blood. Uh, we need to, to get rid of you guys. You've allowed the Soviet Union to um, really build up their ballistic missile storage. You've allowed for this missile gap to occur. The, the country is behind and where we should be. And again, television is going to come into effect here because we're going to have the presidential debates be televised. And this time it hurts Nixon instead of helping him. Uh, we've talked extensively in the past about, about these television debates, but you know, Nixon is, I mean, he's the vice president at this moment and he's got a lot of stuff going on. And Kennedy has a lot of people who know how things should work. Also, you know, JFK is just a, a naturally handsome man. So uh, obviously Kennedy looks a lot better on TV and Nixon looks a lot worse. And so Nixon loses the election. And they, and probably a lot of that comes down to that single debate um, where they just presented differently. Kennedy wins the election. He only wins certain places by a very thin margin. For instance, um, really actually the whole country, he, he wins the popular vote by about 2.2%. Um, you got a lot of, of questions about, you know, is this the kind of election where voter fraud could actually occur and change the course of things? We're only talking about 112,000 votes at this point, um, and there aren't that many votes in the entire country as there are now. And Nixon loses. He folds up, takes his family back to California. Uh, he finally goes into law and then starts to write a book about his time in office and about his upbringing and everything. And hey, maybe this is the end of the road for President Nick or for Vice President Nixon. Yeah, he reluctantly enters the 1962 gubernatorial election for um, California. He enters uh, the race, and the support was clouded because some people were just like, you know what, Tricky Dick is just running so he can have a stepping stone to the presidency and nixon is hoping that his successful run would confirm his status as the leading republican nationwide and that he would still have that national profile he ends up losing though by more than five percentage points and people uh, including uh, abc uh, had a um, episode of um, one of their news programs, and the title of the episode was The Political Obituary of Richard M. Nixon. 
this is the time when Nixon uh, kind of shows his anger. He says it's the media's fault uh, that he loses the election. He says, quote, you won't have Nixon to kick around anytime because, gentlemen, this is my last press conference. You know, So there's just that, shall we say, victim uh, mentality that he takes uh, through this uh, really bitter defeat. About a year later, uh, the family, though, travels to Europe. Uh, Nixon is giving press conferences. He's meeting with foreign leaders. They end up packing their bags uh, to move to New York, where he becomes a senior partner at a law firm. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to run for president in 1964 because of that defeat that I endured. Um, Actually, before he was defeated in California, he said he wasn't going to run for president to kind of overcome those remarks from the opposition who said that this was just going to be a stepping stone. But anyway, he supports uh, Barry Goldwater in 1964 in that election uh, versus LBJ. Of course, LBJ wins that. Goldwater being injured because of that landslide loss to Johnson solidifies Nixon as a leading Republican once again. He goes around campaigning for Republican candidates uh, on the national level and the state level. And by the end of 1967, he says to his family, I'm going to run for president. Pat Nixon was like, really? Are you serious? (laughs) She's supportive of her husband. He goes on to have great success in 1968 because, first of all, LBJ says... I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to run for president. Uh, Unfortunately, Robert Kennedy, uh, another leading Democratic candidate, was assassinated just moments after his California primary victory. And Nixon's only opposition was Michigan Governor George Romney and several other governors, including Ronald Reagan. Uh, each hoped that they would be able to split the vote and have a brokered convention. However, Nixon secures the nomination on the first ballot. He selects Maryland Governor Spiro Agnew as his running mate. He feels that this is going to unify the Western Republicans with the Northern moderates. He's going to maybe attract some Southerners uh, who were starting to see that the Democratic Party may not align with their values. He runs against Hubert Humphrey. And if you remember that 1968 Democratic Convention, that's where all the protests happened. So this is where the term silent majority majority, uh, becomes a term. Nixon says, you know what? You're not hearing all the protests but there's a silent majority of conservatives who want Nixon to win. This is that time period, Jason, that I'm always so interested in, not because of the presidency or anything else. I mean, those are obviously important and and interesting, but you have two vice presidents in a row. And, And granted, you had vice presidents in the past that were kind of under the radar, but you have, uh, Hubert Humphrey, who's LBJ's vice president, and you have Spiro Agnew, who's running and will eventually win 
the vice presidency under Richard Nixon. And I feel like neither one of them do we hear much about now. Um, you know, it, there was a little more discussion, I feel like, in the early days about who the vice president was and it was more important to winning the election. But at this point in our history, it seems like the, the sole focus shifts to who's running for president. And that's definitely the case when Nixon's running for president. I don't know. It's just really interesting to me that, you know, these guys are are second in command to the country. And I feel like I don't know if I ever had heard Spiro Agnew's name until I was in college. And Hubert Humphrey was kind of a meme before memes existed um, as far as being a name. I don't even know that I right. recognized he was a real person um, in hearing about him. So I just find that interesting that they're important, obviously, for for some reason to the campaign, but they certainly you start moving back into that uh, vice president is less important or, or not important maybe at all, like we had early on in the country's history. Yeah. And an, another thing that's fascinating about this time period, and we're, we are going to need to split into an episode three yeah, yeah. <laughs> with Richard Nixon, aren't we? But the the fact that he's on either side of LBJ. Uh-huh. How often is that that somebody who emerges as the the party leader and then, you know, he's out of office and then he emerges again, uh, you're not getting rid of Tricky Dick that easily. That's right. And not that not I mean, we're a history podcast, but to bring that to current day, we're here in uh, June of 2020 or maybe by the time you're listening to this, July of 2020. And we kind of have that happening in our country right now where the uh, presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party is Joe Biden, who was vice president and then decided not to run for president and is now running for president against uh, President Donald Trump. So maybe we'll see something like that happen again. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, if there's anything that I've learned with this podcast is not to freak out over the present because chances are, it's already happened in the past. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like Jason said, we do need to split this up into th- at least three episodes. Who knows? This one's, th- we got a long way to go with Nixon here. So we'll see. We'll see how the next episode goes. But in the meantime, make sure, one, you check out Jason's other podcast, uh, which I'll let him talk about here in a second. And two, make sure to uh, check out our podcast, <laughs> which you're already doing. Uh, <laughs> but you can head over to all the social medias, follow us on there. And we don't really just want you to follow us. Matter of fact, we don't even care if you follow us, but interact with us. Send us a tweet. Hop into our Facebook group and uh, and do some chatting as well. Um, if you want, you can use our Amazon link to help support the show. Go over to Amazon.com, or I'm sorry, electioncollege.com slash Amazon. And, uh, you know, any anything you buy, we'll get a little percentage of. But Jason, tell them about Before They Were States. Yeah, so uh, Before They Were States, it's a podcast chronicling the history before the states became states. So, you know, this could even come up to this era of history uh, that we were entering in uh, prior to this episode, where as recently as the 50s, when Alaska and Hawaii were not yet states. But we're starting off with the with the first one, Delaware, and then jumping all over America, learning about the personalities, people, the places, the things that have made the states what they are. It's also a little bit of a chron- chronicling, 
chronicle. I'm going to chronicle this thing, this lifestyle that's not <laughs> really going to be a forever thing for me and the family, where we're living in an RV. We're traveling around America. There's so many things that I'm picking up, and I just need to write it down or speak it into uh, memory. And that's what this podcast is all about. I'd love to have you join me on the journey. If you don't want to listen to the podcast, if you're like, I have had enough of Jason's voice, you can always sign up for my email newsletter. And you can do that right there on the website before they were states.com. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time for episode 319. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.